I'd ask that you take your Bibles and turn with me to that psalm, to Psalm 79. Psalm 79, if you're visiting with us, we've been working our way through the Psalter periodically from time to time, this being a summer of the Psalms, and so taking those in order, uh, the order not of any kind other than this is the point in my ministry, my ordained ministry, uh, where this is the number of Psalms that I've worked through in order. And so here we come then to Psalm 79. And that understanding of then what's before us is lament. And yet not in the way that we would, even in hearing that song sung, that we would first and foremost rush to. And so let's hear these words together. A Psalm of Asaph, Psalm 79. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your nations on the nations that do not know you, and the kingdoms that do not call upon your name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins, for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you. According to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. As far the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, as we come before your word, we are overwhelmed by the wonder of that phrase, the glory of your name. It is our desire as we come to worship that we would bring you glory, that our lives are to serve for the praise of that glory. And yet, Father, it is so easy for us to look around us outside of the walls of the church into the world and, and see, Father, what is out there that is not glorious that which is broken, that which is sinful, without taking the time to first lament our own brokenness and sin. And so, Lord, with the words of my mouth and the meditations of our spirit bring you glory. May they be that in which your spirit works, that change in us that we all need. And may you continue to bring us before the wonder of our good shepherd, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Children of God called to be saints, soli deo gloria. And we know in this church how often we speak those solas of the Reformation, to God alone be the glory. 
that that statement reclaimed in the Reformation is to inform our lives in every way. But it wasn't just the teaching of the Reformation, but of that which has been born out of it. The chief end of man, Westminster Shorter One, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we are to do it all to the glory of God. In love for God and faith in Him, we rejoice with joy inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. In Christ is that blessing of glory, ours in Him of Ephesians 1. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ may be to the praise of His glory. It's about glory. It's all to be about glory. And to God alone is to be all that glory. And when things are good in our lives, we're ready to say that. When things are happening as we think they ought to happen, we're very quick to God alone be the glory. We're ready to say it when we feel loved or near to the presence of God. In the midst of living out truth and seeing the blessing of it, to God alone be the glory. But do we speak it when considering the sin of the world and the judgment it will bring to the glory of God? Do we speak the glory of God when we consider our own weaknesses, our own brokenness, and our sin, that He has revealed this to us, to God alone be the glory? You see, we claim His glory so quickly when it comes to salvation and those benefits we share in Christ. But why doesn't come the step beforehand to cry glory when we're convicted of our sins, when we can't point our fingers first at the world, but rather at ourselves? What about it to God alone be the glory when we are convicted and see the consequences of sin and the judgment that comes before them? Are we able to glorify God then, knowing that that glory will be His now and forever? For that's what Psalm 79 is forcing us to consider. Because in the form of the lament that it brings, we instantly want to rush, even when we're reading it, to all of those lines which say what? To God alone be the glory for all the ways in which you will crush them and you will judge them. But did you hear those lines about us? You see, Psalm 79 forces us to consider their sins and our sins, and to consider the glory of God's name in grace and in discipline and in judgment. And so, yes, His name is to be glorified now in the time that that judgment tarries, even as we know that it will be fully met in a glory-filled last day. But for us to recognize His name as fully glorious now, we need to be humbly broken. Not so ready to take those lines of the Psalms on our lips in some sort of triumph, but in recognizing what glory really entails. That we would recognize Him who fully deserves our glory, making a plea and finding our hope, not based in anything we think we've earned or deserve, but simply on the God who is. 
the God who is everything he claims to be and says he is. You see, all of this glory is simply a revelation of the name and character of our God. And so the sin of the nations attacks that name. It attacks the honor of God. But in our sin, so do we. We transgress his name. They dismiss his name. They attack that name. We call out on the basis of that name. They'll be judged for the sake of his name. And we deserve that same judgment as well. Except in his gracious and glorious election, he saves us and takes us to be with himself where we will be cared for and delivered simply for the sake of his name. So yes, hear the psalm as that community lament over the sins of the nations. It's still there. We have to deal with the they. But don't leave it without considering the ways that God's chosen people don't always serve for the praise of his glory. And yet what is on us is a promise. That name placed upon us in our baptism, embraced by way of profession of faith. That is a promise to us of what? that we can continue to cry out to him, knowing that he will work in us that which is pleasing to him for his glory. And so we cry out that the Lord would continue to work for the glory of his name. That is the simple theme that we look at tonight in Psalm 79. And so we consider three things, an attack upon the glory of God's name in verses 1 to 4, an appeal upon the glory of God's name in verses 5 to 9, and then an anchoring upon God's, the glory of God's name in verses 10 through 13. An attack, an appeal, and an anchoring. Because in Psalm 79, the attack on the glory of God's name is seen simply in the exile of God's people. That's what's being laid out here in the psalm. And that's a scenario that seems, at least up front, to be completely void of any semblance of the glory of God. Where is he? What is he doing? Why hasn't he come to their aid or to their rescue? Whose fault is that? Because we read this constant bit of they, they, they. And it's almost as though God's people and even Asaph himself in writing the psalm are trying to deflect. Look God at what they have done. Oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They've attacked not only the place of that inheritance, but the people of that inheritance that you have redeemed to yourself by blood, those that you've placed your name and promise on. It sounds like here is a call for God, remember your people. Psalm 74 verse 2, remember your congregation, which you have purchased of of old, which you were redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Remember God. Remember. They attack your glory in attacking your people. They defile your holy temple. They've come into your presence and desecrated it. And it wasn't just the temple. They've laid Jerusalem in ruins. That when those nations, when Babylon enters Jerusalem, according to 2 Kings 25, they burn the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every house they burned down. And all the armies of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. It was utterly destroyed. 
They slaughtered the people called upon by his name. They have given the bodies of your servants, verse 2, to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of the faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was none to bury them. That here for Israel was the ultimate disgrace and humiliation. That the slain lying there were not even considered worth, worthy of the effort of burial. And so as we read these verses in that succession, we get to this point and say, God, how could you do that? Or how could you allow that? How could you will for that to happen among your people? But why didn't you do anything about it? How can you be glorified in what's happened? They've been attacked. They've profaned. But what we come to understand very quickly is that they were speaking truth. That Asaph is speaking truth but not the whole truth. It's kind of like when your kid comes and tells you something that happened, but doesn't tell you that they were a part of it, and they did it, and they egged someone else, right? You've, you've gotten a part of the truth. That's what's presented here. Because this question needed to be asked, was Israel guiltless? Why has all of this come about? Is Israel guiltless? Had Israel lived for the glory of God alone in obedience and thanks. That what is happening here comes by way of the promise of God. Israel, you knew this would happen. I spoke this to you at Sinai. I spoke this to you right before you came into this promised land. If you will not live for me and serve me, if you will whore after the idols of the nations I bring you into, I will vomit you out of my land. He already said it. And now comes the cries of the people, why God? How are you glorified? Because God is who he says he is. It's a graphic account of the fulfillment of Jeremiah 14 verse 16. And the people to whom they prophesy, hear that. They were preached to. The prophets came. They were told, shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem, victims of famine and sword, with none to bury them, them, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, for I will pour out, hear it, their, not the nations, their Israel evil upon them. He pours out Israel's evil upon them themselves. So yes, you can say that the nations attack the glory of God's name, but so have you. And that's why Christians today, we have to take, I think, a lot of care, even in taking up sometimes the singing or the proclamation of these psalms as we head out into the world. All truth is God's truth, all scripture is God breathed out and profitable. But we have to consider some things first. You see, we have to take care anytime we start speaking about them and us, about those people in the world and those people in the church, as though we're holy and righteous and worthy of glory altogether, and they're not. To God alone be the glory. 
For if we will not be for the praise of his glorious grace, what will be brought about other than curse and chastisement that is needed and required? Why would we as the church expect anything less? Verse 4, we have become, finally there's the shift in the psalm in verse 4. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. And this is the card we play. Look at how we're persecuted by the world. We blast it out. Look at how they talk about us. Look at what they've done to us. But verse 4, why? Again, not because of them, because of us. We've transgressed. We haven't been given to your word. We're responsible. And that's what we miss. So yes, the description of the terrible things that the nations had done is shocking. You can't avoid that in those first verses. But what should be far more shocking is that God's covenant meant so little to Israel in the advance of this judgment that came upon them because of their stubborn rebellion and disobedience. It says in Psalm 44, you have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us, you have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. God, that is what you have done to us. That is what we deserve. And so as we call out to him, are we concerned with the glory of God or with our own glory? Are we calling out to God only when things are hard for us and not for the world? Or perhaps this would be a better way to ask it. Does the world attack and mock and laugh at us, not just because they're given to sin, but because we deserve it in our sin, in our hypocrisy, in our glory-robbing sins that are just as heinous as theirs? Has the Lord allowed hard and difficult times in the church's interaction with the world simply because we're not bound up in a desire that he alone be glorified in all things? That's the rub. And yet, what have we been created and recreated for? For the glory of God alone. That he be glorified in all things. And so, yes... Be able to examine and give an answer in all of those ways that the world attacks the glory of God in his name. Be aware. We have every apology to make against it. But cry out again then to God, asking, God, reveal by your word and spirit all the ways that we attack the glory of your name that we rob glory from your name, that we get in the way of others seeing and experiencing the glory of your name so that we, we would come to him in true repentance and ardent faith and serve him under that glorious grace and that our appeal would be bound up then in the glory of his name. And that's in the second place. Because the lament drives finally, and not, not finally in terms of Asaph isn't trying to get there, but, but it drives at least in that text now to, the, to a proper appeal. One wrapped up in a desire for God to be glorified not only in the judgment that he will bring upon the nations, 
but the grace that he will give some to avoid it. And so in Christ, we are brought to desire his glory and serve for it, but only he can bring it about. And so Asaph now is brought to perhaps in that way a more proper question. And again, it's not a question that we love to read in the scriptures. Verse 5, how long, O Lord? We don't want to be patient. Lord, we know what's best right now. Give it to us now. How long? That question too often is bound up in our own experience rather than in considering the glory of God. The phrase is repeated so many times in the Psalter, and yet that appeal needs to finally resolve itself in what? How long, O Lord? Because this is about you, O Lord. This is about your name and the glory of it. And so on the basis of that, we appeal to the glory of your name and to you to restore our relationship. Because of the glory of your name, we appeal to you, judge those responsible for hurt and pain. But where is the direction? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? That isn't speaking about what God is doing in the world around us. That's what he was doing among his people. Asaph is speaking of the herd of Israel in bringing before God an account of how Israel had not glorified him. Why was this jealous God angry? Let's count the ways. Exodus 34, 14. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Psalm 78, 58. For they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. And that's enough. That's enough of the indictment of the entirety of the scriptures. Israel, I'm jealous for you. I have loved you with an unending love and the actions of the nations that I have raised up against you serve for my glory because you have given my glory to others or you have set it aside altogether. He gets at the heart of the matter as he gets at the heart of his people. And we need to be broken by that appeal. This is the work, Lord, that we want you to do out there, that we pray for. Do your work in here. Do that work in me. Let it start right here. Let it start right here in us. In appealing to the glory of God's name, there's an acknowledgement that this is what they're to be about. This is what they are to recommit themselves to. Lord, we appeal to you to uphold the glory of your name. And do it in us. And then bring it in your judgment on the nations. Verse 6, pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you. And the kingdoms that do not call on your name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. We call you, Lord, to remember our sin. We've been brought to remembrance. So now remember what they have done. It's a proper order. And these words in these verses are used in the lament in Jeremiah 10, 25. They're words that appeal to the glory of God because as Israel is broken, she is brought back to the only God who can save. 
That's where we need to be brought. Not delighting in judgment for the nations, but in the wonder that God saves us. Brought back to the only God who can save, the God who alone can be glorified in salvation. And now they are finally waiting. Waiting upon him and waiting upon the truth even of that of Zephaniah 3 verse 8. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. And yet in that interim, God was to be glorified as they waited upon him to do what was right for that glory. So yes, Christian, as you read the psalm, you can be built up and encouraged as far as that goes in an understanding that God will be glorified in a judgment that is soon coming even though the nations act like it never will it says in Psalm 14 verse 4 have they no knowledge all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord and so the lament here is that they have the knowledge They know. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness, but they know. Satan knows that a last day is coming. The demons know a last day is coming. And every sinner knows that a last day is coming. They want to ignore it. They want to mute that. They want to try to forget that in the abuse of all sorts of substances and the like. But everyone knows that there comes a time, an end, They sin according to what is on their hearts. And so our waiting on the Lord brings him glory in that moment. A judgment will come and we will wait upon him. But again, consider this, that we're not simply victims in all of this. Because we still have to be brought back to understanding how we've sinned. And how we've fallen short. How we know that we're not always given to a life of an understanding of the word. An understanding of Christ or of his grace. We know what we deserve. Yet in knowing God and making this appeal. Who have we been made to know? The Lord. The Lord compassionate and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and tender mercies. We know God because he is a deliverer who forgives. And so in being brought, even here in the psalm, before such consequences, we must be sure that we are coming to the Lord seeking forgiveness and grace. Verse 8, do not remember against us our former iniquities. It's an appeal of confession recognizing that while we are not punished for the sins of the fathers, we share in their guilt. And so we must give ourselves to learning from them what they've done and turn in repentance and faith from it that we would be saved. That we would confess our sins to the Lord before ever calling out the sins of the world. Yank that rotten plank out of your eye before you start talking about the world's specs. Recognize your own unrighteousness and need of salvation before you condemn the nations. 
And before that yet, ask for a heart of compassion that the Lord would show you for his glory. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. There's nothing triumphant here. That glory is God alone. But there's a sobriety that comes in this. Because I know what is coming for the nations. And that that would be for me apart from the grace of Christ. Motir writes, compassion is the passionate and emotional love of God. And another commentator, Davidson, adds, forgiveness is rooted in God's compassion. That true confession and forgiveness together bring God all glory. So tonight you are called to confess your sins, trusting that he'll forgive, trusting that he will raise up those who humble themselves before him to the praise of his glory. Hear it in this reading in Isaiah 64. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways, behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sin we have been a long time and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hands. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord. And remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. And after that comes a list then of that judgment. A call for the Lord or a question, will you restrain yourself? But we can rest in seeking the glory of God in these things first, so that we may appeal to God to work his glory in judgment and in our salvation. Look again at verse 9. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. It says in Jeremiah 14, 7, Though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your name's sake. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. Act, God. And that appeal is not first about its help for us, though we so desperately need it. Rather, it's an appeal upon the person and character of God himself. Show yourself to be him who your name is all about. You are the God who saves. When iniquities prevail against me, Psalm 65 verse 3, you atone for our transgressions. For your name's sake, O Lord, Psalm 25 11, pardon my guilt for it is great. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, Psalm 106, verse 8, that he might make known his mighty power. God is at work for his glory in bringing us before the truth of our brokenness so that he can bring us afresh before the wonder of his glory, both in judgment and salvation. He does it to bring us all again before the character of our God. 
to the wonder of his name, that we would glorify him in appealing to it and seeking glory in that appeal even. So call out to God even now for the salvation you need in Christ. That you would be convicted and convinced of your sin. That you would be brought low in acknowledging your sins. And that you, by his grace, would be brought again before the name of the God who saves. Who will defend his honor. Who will defend his people. Who will be praised in every way for the salvation he alone can accomplish and give. And then in every part of your life, anchor yourself upon the glory of God's name. For why should the nation say, where is their God? Hear this plainly. The world says that when God's people aren't about the glory of God. The world says that when the church doesn't speak the glory of God. They say that and pronounce that when we will not live for the glory of God alone, when we will not serve his glorious grace freely given in the beloved. The nations ask where he is when the church gives no testimony that he's here and that he's placed his name upon us so that we would be holy. This is the question of the world when God's people are not anchored in him and in his glory. That's where we go astray, chasing after all the shiny things of this world that don't last. Seeking the approval of men rather than the approval of God and the glory of his name. And so as those anchored upon the glory of God, that glory must become more and more every day our highest goal and our only desire. It is for the glory of God alone. Be glorified in us. Be glorified in all things. Be glorified in this world you have made. Because that anchor allows us to live well and serve well and die well and come into heaven well and serve eternity well. Because we are anchored in that which is right and good and true. That anchor allows you to know your salvation cannot be taken. That you've been redeemed now and forevermore. That you may live a life now and always in the assurance that he will be glorified and all the more so in that last day. So Christian, hold on to your assurance anchored in that glory. Anchor yourself in it. May that be your desire. May it be your delight. That God will save more. That God will be completely and forever glorified. And we need that now. Why? Because everything going on in this psalm hasn't stopped going on. The world doesn't stop attacking. While we have deserved some of it, if we are living a life of that glory, then the reality of that word we use comes. If it's really about the glory of God, that's when suffering and hardships and persecutions come about. That's when we might really cry out to the Lord. But yet we will recognize in that glory we have a place of a steady anchor, of a solid rock. In the spiritual battle, knowing our weakness, knowing the sorrow and sin of this world, we will know what comes against true followers of God in persecutions, in hardships and death. And so we will call to God, yes, bring judgment, but what else? 
that isn't a call just praying for ease, we will cry out for his glory. Let your glory be known. That's when this call and appeal is spoken rightly. Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Here is where we ask for God to act. Even in the words of the prayer of the saints in Revelation 6 verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And as we hear that, we start to get riled up. This is the glory. We're going to live for that glory. And we're going to go out in it. And we're going to tell everybody, we're going to keep praying this prayer. How long, O Lord, pour out your judgment? Watch yourself. As one commentator writes, this is a prayer to echo, but not lightly. Because in using that in that triumphalistic way, we're seeking glory for ourselves. And that ends in sorrow. But as those truly anchored in the glory of God's name, even in praying this prayer, what will we desire all the while? That many men and women and boys and girls would be brought to true and saving faith in Christ. That others would call on the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. That their salvation too would be for the glory of God's name. And being anchored in God's glory in that way, even in the hardships that we face and in the struggles that we will go through, it allows us to wait and wait patiently. It allows us to endure in this time that God's judgment tarries because we know he's faithful to his word. And he's gathering a people to himself and he will preserve his people. It's the prayer of verse 11. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you. It's a call for compassion. According to your great power, preserve those doomed, those sentenced to die. Simply, Lord, in this time, care for your people. Encourage them in their afflictions as you hear their prayers and preserve them. But then, Father, to the glory of your name, follow through with what you've promised. Return sevenfold into the lap, verse 12, of our neighbors, the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. Bring a complete judgment. In every way of what you've promised, bring it. And do it for the glory of your name. They've taunted and reproached you, not us. They've offended you, not us. And we can trust that he will defend his cause. That's our assurance. Isaiah 65, verses 6 and 7. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent. But I will repay, I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. It is sure to be. And so hear this. If you continue in the way of the world, in sinful pride and disobedience, in that way of attacking the truth, of dismissing that truth, of living for your own glory, denying the glory of God, judgment will come. There will be a day of reckoning, and you will be found wanting. And in that day, the Lord will uphold the glory of his name of keeping his word in judgment. And you will be separated from the goodness of God 
forever. So hear this word, you are to repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. To repent of all of your sins and to find grace in a sovereign Lord and faithful Savior. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved, made one who lives for the praise of his glorious grace. That in the last day too, you will be gathered with all the saints who live forever under the glory of his name. For we that your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. What an inheritance. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. There will never be an end to those generations. But we, your people, a sinful people, Lord, no doubt, but a people who have been looked upon with your compassion and who have been saved under the glory of your name and the revelation of your goodness, will praise you now and forever. But no, Christian, that day is coming soon. And you have been anchored in him in the now as that Lord holds you fast until that day where he will keep that word for us too. So look for it. Anticipate it. Long to know that glory. Isaiah 40, behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs into his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead those who are with young. And then praise him for it. Worship him unto that glory. Psalm 100, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are the people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness continues to all generations. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. And so I pray that this psalm gives you a bit more insight into a fuller bit of the wonder of that glory, more the wonder of his name. And so recognize the attack of sin against the glory of his name. Recognize that your salvation is granted only as you are made to appeal to the glory of his name. And then live these days of waiting under the return of Christ anchored in the glory of his name. In the confidence we close with from Psalm 44, verse 8, In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Praise God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and merciful Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the power and wonder of awe of the psalm. Not only, Lord, in the wonders of judgment that you will work in that last day, but the wonder of what you're working in us to humble us, to convict us and convince us of sin, to drive us to yourself, which in that salvation, Lord, is the most splendid glory brought to you and your Son and your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, guard our hearts. Guard our hearts, Father, when we look at the world and all we pray for is judgment to come. Guard our hearts, Father, when the sins of the world are more extreme or more heinous to us than our own sins. Where the world's despising of your name is more awful than the denials of the covenant that we make 
in lives where we dismiss you and the authority of your word. Father, help our unbelief and increase our faith. And Father, we ask then, bring us to our knees again to pray. To pray rightly that you would have your way among your church that waits upon you. So that, Lord, in that way, in dealing with that which is ours, Lord, that you would remind us and comfort us in the fact that you will avenge your own name, that you will be glorified in all things. And so, Lord, may you and may your glory then be a firm and steady anchor for us, a reminder of our purpose and our mission, of that which we are straining toward, and of that which we will share with you and your Son and your Spirit and all the saints forevermore. So, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to you alone be all the glory, soli deo gloria. And, Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name.